when other people are willing to put themselves out there in the public eye and that creates trust, it creates credibility, it creates a connection point. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me excited to have Jeremy Dyer. Jeremy, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing well, Todd. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Long overdue. Uh, Jeremy, man, he's been... Well, he's been investing for quite some time. You started investing in what, early, what, 2008, 2009, somewhere around there. Uh, did some flips and then realized with the busy life, flipping maybe wasn't the right way to go. I'll let you dive into that story. But a uh, little bit about Jeremy right now. He's the founder and managing partner, Starting Point Capital. Jeremy leads the company's investor relations uh, strategic partnerships and serves as the director of marketing for the company. Uh, and um, Starting Point has been extremely active over the last year plus. I'll let Jeremy uh, fill us in. So Jeremy, with that said, give our listeners a bit more about your background. Let's talk about how you got into this and then uh, we'll dive in. Yeah, sounds good. And appreciate that uh, that introduction. And you're right, it is a little bit long overdue. Um, you know, I, I really have you to blame, Todd, uh, for me making that transition from active real estate investing <laughs> to passive. So I'll kind of start with that. But um, yeah, I mean, if you go back 15 years you know, or so ago, uh, my wife and I, uh, we just frankly got bored a little bit and wanted to have a, a side hustle. And I've always had a, a knack for you know real estate and certainly an interest in real estate. And my wife really likes interior design work. So you know, we watched an HGTV, you know, episode of some show 15 years ago, and that sounded super sexy. So we decided to, to jump in and uh, we started buying and fixing and flipping houses. And, you know, that was going really well. I learned a lot about the business. My dad just happened to be a general contractor. So he kind of managed, you know, that side of the business and my wife managed the, uh, the interiors and, you know, I wrote the checks, right. Um, and, you know, what the challenge that we were having is when we got to 2015, um, the side hustle business, while it was growing and scaling, it was taking too much of our time. And what I mean by that is, you know, I still lead a professional, you know, day job. I'm still a W-2 earner. Um, we also at that time ended up going from two to four kids and their busy schedules, you know, with their weekend activities and evening activities was just putting us into a position where we really didn't have time to spend, you know, swinging hammers on weekends and, you know, designing interiors of homes and, you know, certainly putting in offers on 50 houses before we get one kind of a thing, right? Yeah. So we just got to the point in 2015, you know, where we really kind of screamed to mercy and decided to, you know, for me to focus on my day job and grinding it out and crushing my W-2 uh, while stepping away, you know, from actively managing a real estate portfolio so that we could really spend more time watching our kids grow up. You know, that was really at the end of the day, it was very much a relationship decision. And I had to make that decision, decision in my life, you know, to really focus on, you know, spending time with my kids and my wife and, and building out my family as opposed to, you know, spending a lot of my discretionary time, you know, on actively managing real estate. You were probably able to make more money focusing on your W-2 
than you were when you were flipping and doing your W-2 and trying to juggle the kids and the relationships and all that kind of stuff. Is that true or am I wrong with that? No, it's hundred percent true. Your listening audience may not know, but I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a sales professional, right. And, and in a sales professional role, um, you know, you're only as good as your last month's performance, right? <laughs> so, so to your point, um, you're exactly right. You know, I, I had to make that decision. I need to focus on my, my employer. I need to focus on, you know, crushing my quota, you know, month in and month out. And one of the great things about, you know, kind of that transition into, into, into being in real estate on the passive side is the more I crushed my day job, the more disposable income I had to then deploy into, right. you know, that next real estate investment. So take me through. So you, so you were flipping, you said, I can't keep doing this, right? Uh, this is, this is eating into too much. Um, I gotta, I gotta focus on my W two, focus on my family, you know, do do that thing. You started though, you didn't stop investing. You didn't say I'm done with real estate. Period. You said I'm gonna do this a different way. Let's talk about the way you went. Yeah, the right out of the gates, I took that capital that we had actively deployed into real estate. You know, once we sold those properties, uh, I deployed it straight into a debt equity fund. You know, I was getting eight to twelve percent, um, you know, uh, distributions. You know, on that on that income, and around that same time, then I had also learned about real estate syndications. Um, previous to that, I didn't really even understand the word syndication. You know, other than I knew the Packers are a syndicated football team. <laughs> you know, but beyond that, I really didn't truly understand. You know, what syndication meant, and certainly I had no idea you know, driving down the road that the apartment on my left and on my right are actually owned by real estate syndicators who partner with limited partner investors to get involved into, you know, diversifying in, into real estate. So it was really at that time that I learned what syndication meant. And I will be honest with you, I took the shotgun approach in that first, you know, investment that I made. Um, I just knew and I liked the sponsor enough to hold my breath, plug my nose, send that wire transfer in and kind of hope for the best, right? And thankfully, you know, that investment turned out turned out well. Uh, I just wish I had doubled down on the strategy earlier, <laughs> quite frankly. You know, I waited several years for, you know, the theory to kind of prove itself, you know, before I started redeploying additional capital, you know, uh, as the passive limited partner investor. Yeah, I think that's pretty natural. You know, you put that first one in and you go, okay, does this work? And a lot of, and that's active or passive. You're like, okay, well, does this work? How is a debt equity fund? You, you said debt equity fund and now syndication. Uh, how is a debt equity fund different from a syndication? Yeah, I mean, the debt equity fund really provides, you know, consistent regular cash flow. Those funds end up going into, you know, other types of syndication projects for sponsors that are looking for some additional, you know, capital, right, uh, to acquire assets, some of which are syndicated opportunities and some of which might be joint venture opportunities. But really the debt equity fund provided that regular, consistent, you know, mailbox money, cash flow, but there's no equity upside, right? Yep. And there's no tax depreciation benefits either, right? And so I'm a big fan from a, from an investor perspective to be diversified. I like to invest into, 
you know, opportunities that are a little bit lower risk, right? Like a debt equity fund as an example with no equity upside. And then I like to balance that with an approach where I'm seeking both, you know, cash flow uh, as well as where there's an equity upside, you know, element at the end, you know, when that deal goes full cycle. Yeah. Love that. And I think that's, that's smart, especially if you've got some funds to play with then to be able to then balance your portfolio nicely. I think it's funny. You mentioned, you, you mentioned that you, you, especially if you're not in this world, you don't even realize it. Like most of the apartment buildings that you drive by on a daily basis are owned by a private equity group, a group that, you know, they've got somebody that's maybe on paper looks like the owner, but they've got a bunch of money, which is people backing that deal. So it's a syndication or some sort of form like of, of a syndication type uh, group. Most of the vast majority of them aren't just owned by you or me it's completely, you know, it's, it's owned by a big group of people. It's so, it's so funny to think. And you, I mean, that's how I thought when I was, it's just by some rich people, right? Some rich people own this thing. Yeah. I mean, you assume, right. It's going to be owned by, you know, like a private equity firm. or a big private equity firm. Yeah. Yeah. A BlackRock, yeah. a Vanguard, a state street, you know, something like that. But, you know, little do you realize, wow, there's a lot of these apartment buildings across the country, you know, that are owned by, you know, people like you and me. Right. Yep. And I'm an owner of a lot of them, but it's just as a completely passive limited partner. I don't have voting rights. I don't make decisions on, yeah. you know, how the, you know, lead sponsor is managing, you know, that asset. And I'm just kind of along for the ride. Yeah. So you started um, with this debt equity, then you, then you went into syndications and you obviously expanded uh, from there. Um, and, and now I guess take me through that expansion and then now what you're doing right now with starting point capital um, is similar, but with a, with a kind of an extra little, um, I don't know, bonus on top of it, I guess. Yeah, no, great uh, question. So what I haven't explained yet is when I got to 2019, I, I doubled and tripled down on the strategy as a limited partner passive investor. And so now if you fast forward from 2019 until today, uh, my wife and I are limited partner investors in 27 investment properties or projects, okay? 80% uh, of them are in the multifamily space. 20% of them are in other asset classes, whether it be you know self-storage, retail, flex office, assisted living, right? Um, I've all also chosen to diversify into different markets. So on the multifamily side, you know, most of those properties are going to be located in Tennessee, Ohio, Texas, the Carolinas, Arizona. Okay. So then now if you, if you, if you go back just 18 months ago, okay, I was seeing how impactful my passive real estate investments were on replacing the dependence on the W-2. Okay. And while, while it, it takes some time for those theories or that plan to prove out itself, right? You know, initially your distributions might start small, but they start to kind of grow over time. You know, really the main, you know, upside to the investor is when these deals start to go full cycle or there's a, you know, a capital event, you know, for example, like a cash out refinance, you know, that's really when the investor starts to see some of these returns. So I was starting to see some of those returns, 
on some of the early investments that I had made. And I've now gotten to the point in which, you know, I'm fairly confident that within the next, you know, call it two to five years, somewhere in there, um, my passive real estate investments that I've made over the last several years, that income is going to completely replace my hard earned W-2 income. So I've personally seen how impactful it can be on an investor. Now it obviously takes money to make money in this business, right. which is why I'm why I'm dead set on encouraging people to keep tr keep crushing your day job. Okay, keep maxing out your earnings, max out your W twos. You know, find a way to deploy capital. You know, into multiple real estate you know opportunities over time because once some of those deals come full cycle, um, they start to compound on one another and they're tax advantaged, right? Neither you nor I are, are CPAs or tax professionals, but we can see you know, how the tax benefit side allow you to really minimize the tax consequences, some of the gains that you're making. So now 18 months ago, I was given the opportunity uh, by someone by the name of Todd Dexheimer. I don't know if you've heard his name before, but Todd gave me the opportunity to help partner along with him on really providing references to investors that are looking to maybe deploy capital for the first time in a real estate syndication. Um, I was hopefully a good reference, you know, for Todd at that time, right? Because I, you know, was able to kind of speak specifically to the impacts and kind of the ins and the outs, you know, from a, a real limited partner, passive investor perspective. But what I also learned at that time is that I really enjoy this. Okay. I really enjoy having conversations with people that are just like me higher net worth individuals, you know, that are, you know, choosing to diversify outside of Wall Street and into Main Street, you know, maybe they're, they're done with kind of that roller coaster emotional, you know, roller coaster of the, the markets going up and the markets going down, um, you know, they and they want to create passive income for themselves. So at that time, I made the decision to start starting point capital. My business is largely an education platform that gives investors the opportunity to partner with us into future investments. So a big part of starting point capital is really educating um, investors that are not familiar with, just like I wasn't, you know, they weren't familiar with investing passively into a real estate syndication. And that's really the genesis of our, of our company is to continue to educate people like you and me on the strategy. Yeah. And so starting point, what you, you're, you're doing is because uh, creating a fund, right? Creating a a investment vehicle to then invest in these passive deals, um, with you alongside of you. You're still investing in all of these opportunities. Uh, your partners, you guys are investing in these deals, and um, people that you've educated, people that you know, are saying, "Hey, yeah, I'd like to." invest alongside of you is that's correct right yeah totally correct i mean at the end of the day like my partners and myself we're going to invest in these deals regardless if anybody else chooses to partner alongside of us but the way that we've really created and structured it is through what we call an spv a special purpose vehicle flex fund and we can dive into some of those details if you like but one of the one of the main leverage points that we have with the sponsor is our fund then can produce a preferred return, or I should say a better projected return to investors that partner alongside us into the investment. 
So we we basically allow our investors to gain access to higher projected returns that would typically be reserved for investors that are coming in with large checks, say 50,000 or million dollar investors, right? We're giving our investors similar return profiles that those types of investors would, would get while allowing them to come into our investment opportunities at a lower amount, say 50,000, for example. Let me just make sure the listeners understand how, how this works, right? So when you're a general partner and you're raising money, you oftentimes, not always, oftentimes you'll have a couple different share classes. And one of them, your traditional share classes for that investor that can come in for the minimum, 50,000, maybe it's even 25,000, whatever it is, they can come in for that minimum and they can invest. And maybe it's a 70-30 split with the equity. Maybe it's a 7% preferred return, okay? Then you've got a group like what Jeremy was just talking about, where if an investor comes in at a million dollars or more, maybe it's 5 million, maybe whatever. There's a there's a floor though. Say you come in at this amount, we'll give you instead of a 70-30 split, maybe we're giving you an 80-20 or 90-10 or something like that. Maybe instead of a seven preferred return, we're giving you an eight or maybe it's even a nine or some, something like that. So we're giving you better benefits if you come in with more money. What you're telling us is that that's what you're doing is if you guys as a group come in with a million dollars or more or whatever that benchmark is, that you're getting that better split and as a group, then you're able to benefit from that. Is that, is that? Yeah, you're, you're spot on. And it really comes down to obviously leverage, right? You know, we have the leverage because we know when a sponsor comes to us with an opportunity, you know, after we've done our own due diligence and we're willing to put our own money into that deal, you know, as partners of starting point capital, um, we're able to leverage with the sponsor, a larger check, right? So there's a cost of capital, you know, to the sponsor, and the sponsor is willing to give us preferred return economics, which we then, you know, really push a lot of those preferred return economics off onto our investors, which really gives them the opportunity to earn more than what they would if they went retail direct into the deal. And, you know, as most of your listening audience knows, you know, most of the opportunities that are out there, you know, are uh, regulation D 506 B offerings, which means that you have to have a relationship you know, with right. the investor in order for them to get into the deal. So sponsors certainly like starting point capital because we're able to maintain, you know, a an SEC compliant relationship with our investors right. where the sponsor doesn't have to do that directly. Yeah. And so they're getting a couple benefits from you. First of all, they're getting a, a deal brought to them that they maybe wouldn't otherwise even find, right? They're also getting a deal brought to them that has been pre-vetted by you for whatever that might be worth, by the way, as an investor, you want to make sure that you vet your own deals. Don't, don't, if you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, I like what Jeremy says. I'm just going to listen. I'm just going to invest in everything he invests in. Don't be stupid. Right. I think Jeremy's a smart guy, but you want to make sure that you check too, but at least you've got somebody else's eyes that have been on it, that has approved it. And you go, okay, somebody else likes this deal. I trust this guy. Now I get to take my own look at it. So you've got a pre-vetted deal. And then the last thing is you potentially have some better returns than if you just put your money directly into that deal. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And that's one of the things we encourage all of our investors to do is listen, before you invest into one of our deals, invest in yourself first. Okay. Mm. Well, 
what does that mean? Learn, learn about right. the due diligence process, learn about the underwriting process, right. learn about all the assumptions the sponsor uses to come up with their internal rate of return and their equity multiple. Ask questions, right? You know, all of that is incredibly important, you know, for really all investors, both those that are experienced and non-experienced to really ask those questions. And quite frankly, if, you're not, you, if you don't have a, an opportunity that comes with a sponsor that's not encouraging you to invest in your own education, then you might want to think twice about investing with them. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. One thing that we make sure we do is anybody that's new, we're going to give them kind of a new investor packet. And I know you do the same thing. Uh, yours probably looks different than mine, but you're telling these are the things you want your investors to look look at and learn about and we've got blogs we've got all kinds of resources that we send them and we also have our previous deals that they can look at take a look at i think that's really important to look at previous deals that have happened you can't invest in those deals are already done but at least you can see what's being offered and you can look and you can start to get to know the numbers that way when that next deal does come to you it's not just a, like i don't know what this thing is even so you're, you want to, for sure, you want to educate yourself. One thing that I think is awesome that you're doing, um, is, is really bringing that to the forefront, right? Making that, that's really important to you is making sure that they're educated. And I think that's really, it helps your investors a lot. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what does it take Jeremy to, for those who want to raise money? Or are wondering what is it like? What does it take to raise millions of dollars? Because not everybody can do it. You and I know people that have wanted to raise money or want to raise money and struggle with it or can't do it at all. Um, and then there's others that it seems like it's just so easy. Like, is there a a magic formula or a secret sauce? Great question. And I get that question a lot. Um, for your listening audience that doesn't know me, I not putting a feather in my cap, but um, what I would say is I kind of feel like I could be the capital raising rookie of the year because I've really only been at this for a year or so. Okay. Yep. Um, you know, we've been able to raise literally tens of millions of dollars from hundreds of investors. Now we can say, okay. In, in a year's time period. And what yeah, I would which tell, is remarkable, by the way, like that, that, that most people, if you ask them what they raised in their first year, it's under 2 million, but well, most people, it's probably under a million. And a lot of people, it's under 500,000. Yeah, no. And I, and I know that and I hear from those individuals on a, on an almost daily basis because they want to know the question that you just asked me and what's the secret sauce. Okay. The secret sauce for me specifically has been all about my reputation, okay? A reputation that I didn't create in days, months, but literally not just years, but decades, okay? Mm -hmm. So it's been relatively, I would say, easier for me to raise capital from people that already have known me, have liked me, and have trusted me for decades, so, and a lot of that comes down to me continually trying to become a better version of myself. So I've really always taken it upon myself in my professional job and in my personal life to really continually level up my game, right? Continually, you know, work to expand my network, continue to find ways to provide value to, to others, right? 
you know, to continue to crush my professional day job, you know, so there's, there's all kinds of things that go into that, right? Um, the other side of it is, is really, um, you know, the, the best time to raise capital in this game is when you don't need it, right? So I find ways to continue to use a drip marketing type of a strategy to continue to stay relevant, to continue to stay in front of people that are part of my personal and professional network so that in the future, if I provide value, 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 value in the future, when I have an opportunity available, you know, those mm -hmm. investors or those, in, those individuals are then more like, likely to, to partner with me. The other side of that, which I think is a, a bit of a challenge for a lot of folks that are looking to raise capital is they're not willing to put themselves out there. Okay. When I mean, but I, what I mean, but when I say that is putting yourself out there on on social channels, whether it be, you know, LinkedIn or Instagram or whatever your, you know, social media flavor channel is, right? There's unfortunately in this space, not a lot of people that want to put themselves out there. Okay. Yep. Record a video of them talking about something that provides value to their audience, taking a picture of themselves and providing a write-up of something, a lesson learned, you know, this week or this month. Right. And I think that people really resonate when, other people are willing to put themselves out there in the public eye. And that creates trust. It creates credibility. It creates a connection point, you know, on a human level with the other individual. And when you do that with people, they're more willing to want to work with you. And really, quite frankly, they want to learn more about what you're up to, right? And when they learn about what you're up to, that gives you that, it gives you that opportunity then to further educate them and then ultimately give them that opportunity to partner with you on a future investment opportunity. What's your favorite social platform? Uh, LinkedIn is the playground. Yeah. Yeah. I think LinkedIn is way underutilized and I think it's just starting to become thought of by more and more people, but LinkedIn is so underutilized. Um, obviously podcasts are, are great as well. Um, I think one thing that maybe you didn't say, or maybe you said indirectly, but personality plays a big part into it as well. I think people need to be real with themselves. Do you have a personality that allows it, that allows you to raise capital? And just, just be honest with yourself. Like Jeremy, you're a sales guy and you're a successful sales guy because you have a personality that allows you to sell. And now you're not a slick car sales guy. You're a sales guy that people, that you're easy to talk to. People trust you very quickly because you're honest and because that's how you portray yourself. It's just how you talk. Um, and you you know how to do all the, the little things too as a salesperson, but you've got the personality to be successful at it. There's other people that just don't. And be honest with yourself. If you're that person, it's okay. Cause there's many other things you can do by the way, other than raising a bunch of capital. Would you agree with me or, or am I off base on that? No, I think you're spot on Todd. And I think, you know, one of the big things that um, allow me to kind of be a magnet in this business where people just want to, you know, learn more about what I'm up to and they're, they're willing to, you know, send 50, hundred thousand dollar checks, right. You know, time and time again, it really comes down to this, uh, you know, idea or concept of genuineness, right? Yeah. Like I'm just genuine, right? Yeah. I, I will, I will be very transparent with an investor. 
this is not a get rich quick scheme at all. You know, here's, right. here's the, here's the skeletons that could potentially reveal themselves in the closet. Right. Hmm. You know, this is how, you know, these types of investments from a risk adjusted perspective, you know, work, right. You're not throwing your money at Apple stock or Facebook stock, you know, not knowing what's going to happen, but there's a local team that's actually managing the value add business plan that I have a right. direct relationship with. I know I can trust them. I've, you know, invested, you know, time and time again, my own money with them, right? But it all comes down to their ability to execute on the business plan and you're you're you trusting that they're going to be able to do that, right? So I would say that, you know, a lot of it comes down to genuineness. Another side of it side of it is is I think a lot of folks that are in the capital raising space struggle with imposter syndrome. Hmm. Okay. They, 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 that imposter syndrome of, of just not feeling incredibly comfortable with what they're doing prevents them from doing more of it. Right. Mm. And what I've learned when it comes to imposter syndrome, that's kind of the anecdote is the rinse and repeat, the continuing to put in more reps, continue to do the thing over and over and over and over right. again. And the more you do it, the more you realize I'm not an imposter at all here. Okay. I am literally providing real value and real opportunities to real individuals that can have, can make a significant impact on that person's financial well-being now and into the future. And when you get to that point where you're confident in your approach and your understanding, um, and you've put in the reps over and over and over again, you can rest assured that I'm not an imposter at all in this game. I, I am literally you know, providing, you know, value to my, to my audience and to the people that I connect with in a meaningful way. By the way, you go out there and you say, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to invest in this deal. I really like it. And I'm going to tell all my connections that, you know, I've kind of built these relationships with about this deal. And, and you bring in two people only you fall flat on your face or you think you fell flat on your face. And these two people come in and, and that's a hundred thousand dollars. And so now all you got is your money. Maybe you're going to put in a hundred thousand dollars in this hundred, hundred thousand dollars. You thought you fell flat on your face, but what I'll tell you is you've raised more money than 90, probably 5% or more of the people out there that have ever raised money. So just by raising a hundred thousand dollars, you did better than most people. And most people would be impressed that you raised a hundred thousand dollars. You thought you fell flat on your face, but you've done something that most people have never done before. That's the imposter syndrome that Jeremy's talking about. Put in the reps. Next time, raise two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, did you did you do what you wanted? No. Next time, raise five hundred thousand dollars, then a million, and it starts to snowball from there. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And you're exactly right. I mean, you might think you failed in that pursuit, but the reality is, look at all the lessons you've learned, right? And going through that exercise and those conversations that you're having with investors is only going to get stronger the more you do it, right? You know, the more you the more you have those interactions and you have those at bats, the more likelihood you're going to be in a better position, you know, come the seventh, eighth, ninth inning to make an impact, you know, for for your team. Yep, I talk to a lot of people, Jeremy, that are like they're kind of embarrassed. You ask them, you know, have you? Have you invested in real estate before? Oh, I've, yeah, I, you know, nothing much. You know, I, I've only, I've, I've owned a duplex or, uh, you know, I've, yeah, I invested in another syndication, only $50,000 or only $25,000. And they kind of are embarrassed that they haven't done more. And it's like, wait a second. Now you have done literally 95 or more than what 95% of the population ever will do. So be proud of that duplex. 
you might not think it's a lot, but most people would be like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Right. So be proud of that. Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. And, and that's one of the things that I think helps also make it easier for me to have conversations with potential new investors is because I've done it right. Yep. I've been on the active side of real estate ownership, which a lot of investors want to get into it actively. And then I kind of, you know, explain what that's going to probably look like. Right. And they're like, ah, maybe I don't want to do that. Right. But on the other side of it, I'm in 27 deals as a limited partner mm -hmm. investor. Right. You know, I started investing passively, you know, back in 2015, right. Which right. is almost nine years ago now. So I have a, a story that I can tell of real impact and how it's really, you know, truly, you know, impacted our own, you know, financial journey. Yeah, that that's powerful right there. And even if you don't have 27 deals that you've invested in and they don't have that big track record, if you start and you can point to that story, that's, that's huge. Um, everybody loves real estate. I, I say, I say that all the time. Everybody wants to be a real estate investor. Well, why be passive versus active because in active i get to control the deal right i should be able to make more money all this kind of stuff why passive versus active and by active by the way just so our listeners know a passive i mean putting your money in a syndication putting your money into a debt equity fund something like that by active i mean buying your own duplex buying your own sixplex buying you know even if you have a property manager i still call that active yeah, I mean, obviously, as you know, and your listening audience, you know, probably knows that it really comes down to your own personal goals, your own personal bandwidth, right? Yeah. I kind of joke with people now that if you want to get into active real estate ownership, that's fine. But just so you know, it's a young man's game. Okay. What do I mean by that? Okay. If you want to have a family someday and you want to see your kids, you know, grow up and you want to have a relationship with your wife and you want to do all the things that you want to do, you know, personally speaking, then it's probably better if you become a passive investor versus actively managing a, a, a real estate portfolio or fixing and flipping houses like I do. Now, yeah. everybody's got so much time in a day, right? And so you need to really figure out, you know, how much time would you have available to allocate towards actively owning real estate? And then let's take a look at the last 12 months of your life. And at what point in the last 12 months of your life would you have been in a scenario or a situation in which you wouldn't have been able to actively manage that real estate portfolio? That's a great way of thinking it, by the way. I love that approach. I mean, think about it. Like if you got sick in the last year, okay, and a tenant called you up and said, my toilet's clogged, okay, you, you might be barfing over your own toilet, but now you got to go clean up somebody else's, right? You know, that kind of thing. So I, I think about that, but I also, it's not just the time, okay? Yeah. Because you can learn a lot of lessons through active real estate ownership. Yep. And quite frankly, I encourage people sometimes to consider doing that, right? In addition to passively investing in real estate, because they're going to really learn the business. Okay. The other side of that is opportunity cost. Okay. What's your time worth? Okay. And what would be the opportunity cost of instead of putting $50,000 into grandma's house down the road, fixing and flipping and renting it out? What would, would be the opportunity cost of instead putting that $50,000 into a passive real estate investment? You know, what would the returns and the risk, you know, look like? So you really have to weigh that out as an investor to determine what's right for you. But in full disclosure, my son's 17 years old, okay? He's going to be going to college in a couple of years. He's not going to rent, okay? And he's not living at home either. 
Okay. Yeah. What's it going to yeah. do is going to house hack, right? Yeah. We're going to find a house for him to buy and rent out a couple of rooms in there and get his buddies to pay his, his mortgage. Right. Um, so there's, but it's a young man's game. But I he's young. He's got time and it's going to learn. He's going to learn a ton of skills. He's, and he's, by the way, he's going to learn what he likes and doesn't like about it. That that's a super valuable lesson. I agree. There's just, it's, there's never a either or, right? It's, it's what fits you, what fits your lifestyle. If you're going to be active, understand it's a business and treat it like a business. If you're going to be passive, you know, you don't have the control, but you have the time. Right. So love it. Um, you've done 27 deals. You've probably learned a thing or two that our listeners just don't know. What are your top, you know, maybe three to five lessons you've learned that you can pass down to our listeners? Yeah, I don't know if I can come up with three to five, but let me come up with a couple of them that I think are really important, okay? And that is don't chase after the IRR, okay? Mm. I would much rather, now that I know what I know now, I would much rather really truly spend time, you know, vetting out the opportunity, you know, challenging the assumptions, okay, um, that the sponsor made, you know, during their due diligence and in their underwriting, okay? There are some very simple assumptions that you can challenge as a limited partner investor as you pour through the financials and the underwriting, okay? Simple things like expected, you know, exit cap rate, as an example, uh, wage growth in that market, you know, job growth, job diversification, um, you know, loss to lease, which is oftentimes brought up a lot, you know, yep. in an investor presentation, you know, really challenge those competitive assets in that market that maybe are already repositioned or their new product, you know, will the sponsor successfully be able to burn off that loss to lease? you know, during that value add business plan or not, right? Um, the other lesson that I would say, which I'm thankful that I, um, that I, we deployed right away, and that is really a diversification, okay? I regularly have investors that will come to me and they'll say, hey, Jeremy, I've got, you know, 500,000 bucks sitting in an old IRA from my old employer, and I'm gonna self-direct that into your next investment opportunity. And I say, while I would be really appreciative of you putting $500,000 into my next deal, let's pump the brakes. Maybe yeah. let's consider doing you know, five different deals at 100K each or 10 deals at 50K each, right? You know, let's, uh, let's put that money in multiple different markets for diversification reasons, maybe even different asset classes. Yeah, I had a... An interview with a guy, this was several years ago, and uh, he had several multifamily investments. Um, I think it was like 12 and two or three of them went completely sideways and lost all of his investors' money on those, I think it was two um, deals. And he said, what really sucks is those investors lost all their money. But he said, the investors that invested in all 12 of my deals, they were they weren't happy, right? But they didn't, it didn't bother them that much because yeah, they lost the 50K on that one, but on all the other ones, they doubled their money. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. if you've got the resources, I agree to, to diversify. And I say the same thing. I get people that are really excited about putting money into and they want to put three, four, five hundred thousand dollars in a deal. I'm like, wait a second. Let's spread that out. It makes a lot more sense. 
stuff. I mean, your financial advisor is going to tell you to diversify. Your financial advisor is going to tell you to, um, you know, invest at all different, you know, stages of the the, the cycle, right? Yeah. Uh, for dollar cost averaging, right? You can use those same strategies when it comes to to real estate investing. And 100%. the reality, the reality is, is none of us have a crystal ball. Okay, so we don't know what exit cap rates are going to be in five years. We don't know. Okay. We have projections. We can make some assumptions, right? That kind of thing. But at the end of the day, we don't know, but I am very confident in taking the strategy of dollar cost averaging, diversifying, you know, income into multiple investment opportunities. I'm also a big fan of making investments at all different stages of the economic cycle. Okay. Yep. The reality is, and you know, this full well, you know, back in 2016, 17, 18, 19, everybody thought a recession was months away, oh, yeah. right? Well, if you chose not to invest in real estate in 16 through 19, you missed out on a huge run up, right? Yep. Um, and so that's why I'm a big fan of, you know, not putting all my eggs in one basket, diversifying those investments over time. And the beauty of investments that I made five years ago, once they start to eventually come full cycle, right? Not only am I deploying that original capital into the next deal, but I'm also deploying those profits as well. So you right. can definitely see how that compounding effect can make a huge impact. Yeah, love that, love that. Jeremy, I got a couple last questions. I want to pivot here. Uh, a couple last questions before we wrap up. What's a what's a favorite book you can recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I've got a couple of them. Um, I really like the Psychology of Money by Morgan Howard. Great Hull. book. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of that book. Um, both my 15 and 17 year olds have read that book. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Hands Off Investor book by Brian Burke. In fact, I oftentimes will challenge potential new investors to read that book before they decide to invest, you know, with us into a future opportunity because you know that book is jam packed with you know a dozen hours of what are real estate syndications, right? You know, what are sponsors? What are LPs, GPs, IRRs? You know, there's lots of acronyms that we can throw at investors, right? Yeah. That book just does a great thorough job, you know, of really explaining, you know, all the intricacies of real estate syndications and investing, you know, passively. Um, and then I would say maybe the last one, I know this kind of gets thrown out probably on your show a lot as it does mine, you know, the purple book, right? You know, the rich dad, poor dad book. Um, just this Christmas, I bought uh, my boys uh, Cash Flow, which is a board game by Robert mm. Kiyosaki. And I think his wife was involved in the, yep. in the creation of that board game. But um, my kids can't stop playing that game. Like every uh, night. We're, com we're coming over and we're going to have a, a board game night with the kids. <laughs> so many, so many lessons learned in that book, Todd. I wish I had had the opportunity to play that board game like 20 years ago. Yeah, right. I think things would have looked a little <laughs> bit different, but so glad my kids have that opportunity. Yeah, that's great. Uh, what are your, Jeremy, what are your three pillars of wealth creation? Yeah, I would say relationships matter. Um, mm -hmm. That's, that's got to be number one for me. Um, and it's not just relationships with, you know, people that are outside your family, but get your own house in order. You know, mm -hmm. I'm a really big fan of investing in relationships, whether it be with my wife, with my kids, you know, with my neighbors, you know, with others. Um, relationships are, are, are very important to me. Um, one of the pillars that we brought up before, you know, there's obviously the diversification, you know, side to investing, you know, I'll never tell somebody to get out of wall street, you know, but if you're not invested into real estate outside of the home that you live in, you probably should consider it. 
yeah. because that investing strategy over time has proven to be, you know, a better investment uh, than even any one that you you would make uh, within Wall Street. And then, you know, I'd say the last pillar is really, you know, my faith. You know, that's really my kind of my guiding compass. Um, you know, I'm a man of faith, and so, you know, that conducts itself in in how I relate with other people, right? Um, in terms of the decisions that I make, you know, knowing that, uh, you know, that my faith and relationship in God is really my, my compass and, 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 life in general. Awesome. Love it. What did we miss? Anything? Oh, Todd, you and I both know, so your listening audience doesn't know this about you and I, but Todd and I get together every so often and we could literally talk for days without yeah. stopping. Like five or six episodes. We'd probably have to chunk this up into, but that's okay. Um, Jeremy, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Learn more about what you got going on. Yeah. Thank you for asking. So I'm fairly uh, active on LinkedIn. You can find me there under Jeremy Dyer. Um, I also host a podcast that produces two episodes per week called the freedom point. And then thirdly, uh, you're welcome to check out our website at, uh, startingpointcapital.com. again, startingpointcapital.com. Awesome. We'll throw that in the show notes, Jeremy. Really appreciate it, man. Uh, this has been fun. And like you said, we talk often, but it's always fun to have a, a formal interview like this uh, and long overdue, but it was it was a good time. So appreciate it. Appreciate all the value, uh, tons of value here, by the way, listeners. So if you miss something, just go back, rewind it, but take a couple notes and uh, and use it. Uh, take what Jeremy said and, and apply it to your life. Yeah, Todd, thanks for having me on the show. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, give us a thumbs up. Go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. But your rating and review just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and, and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to venturedproperties.com, venturedproperties.com and download our free ebook uh, on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. Uh, and, and also, look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go to coachwithdex.com and check that out and uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.